Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, January uh, the 27th, uh, January the 28th, uh, 2024, and uh, we're broadcasting from our studios uh, in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition uh, of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches uh, related to the attacks uh, by the Washington Post on a leading primary source for the Palestinian affairs, and that is Electronic Intifada. The Alliance of Sahel States have formally withdrawn from the economic community of West African states. We'll have details on that as well. The West African state of Mali, which is part of the Alliance of Sahel States, has ended its ceasefire with a rebel grouping. And uh, United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken has visited four African states. In the second hour, we listened to a debate on the International Court of Justice ruling on the South African lawsuit against the state of Israel. We then examined the killing of three U.S. troops in a drone attack in Jordan earlier today. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned, and uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with the Umkaltum Orchestra Film Festival. This is from a concert uh, from 1962. Let's listen in. 
I'm a 
Concert uh, recorded in uh, 1962 uh, in the North African state of Egypt in Cairo. You're listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, January the 28th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, right now, we'd like to move into our Pan African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's Pan African Newswire. Uh, one of the uh, primary sources on uh, contemporary affairs and the historical studies related uh, to the struggle of the Palestinian people against settler colonialism and imperialism, the Electronic Intifada, uh, came under attack. And now just last Sunday, the Washington Post published a hit piece uh, targeting the Electronic Intifada and other independent media that have consistently challenged and exposed Israel's lies about the events of October the 7th. Now, written by Elizabeth Dwanskin, a Nakba denier who has expressed far-right Zionist views, uh, the Washington Post article falsely characterized 
and misquotes the Electronic Intifada's reporting and attempts to smear us by association with Holocaust deniers and conspiracy theorists. On the Electronic Intifada live stream on January the 24th, I discussed some of the most egregious lies in Dwoskin's piece and showed how she relied on the Network Contagion Research Institute, the NCRI, which she describes benignly as a, quote, nonprofit tracking disinformation, unquote. In fact, NCRI is led by individuals closely tied to various Israeli lobby groups uh, with a long history of defaming Palestinians and advocates for their rights as, quote, anti-Semites, unquote, including the Anti-Defamation League. NCRI co-founder Joel Finkenstein was a research fellow for the Anti-Defamation League and the NCRI and the ADL have established a formal partnership. A senior executive of NCRI is the former chief executive of the Community Security Trust, an Israeli lobby which plays a similar role in the United Kingdom to that of the Anti-Defamation League in North America. Now, during the segment, uh, the author explains how the Community Security Trust supplied the British government with fabricated quotes from Sheikh Raid Salah, a Palestinian leader with Israeli citizenship, group pressured the government to stop Salah entering kingdom. Uh, you can read this article in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, the three nations accused uh, the bloc, uh, that is the economic community of West African states, of negligence uh, during the 2012 Sahel upheaval, noting that it imposed, quote, illegal, illegitimate, inhuman, and irresponsible unquote, sanctions upon their decision to take control of their destiny. As uh, Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso exited the ECOWAS bloc on Sunday, uh, the three countries labeled the economic alliance as, quote, a threat, unquote, to member states. Quote, ECOWAS, under the influence of foreign powers, has betrayed its founding principles and become a threat to member states and their peoples whose happiness it is supposed to ensure, unquote, the joint statement read, the trio accuses the Nigeria-based bloc of not safeguarding them from terrorists during the Sahel region 2012 upheaval. Instead, they argue that it imposed, quote, illegal, illegitimate, inhumane, and irresponsible, unquote, sanctions once they opted to, quote, take their destiny into their own hands, unquote. As a result, the governments of the three countries resolved to, quote, withdraw from ECOWAS without delay, unquote. As for ECOWAS, the bloc mentioned that it had not received official notification of their withdrawal. And uh, this article as well can be read in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. And uh, in another uh, news item, uh, Mali's junta has terminated a crucial agreement with the local rebels that uh, helped maintain a fragile peace in the country's north. That's according uh, to an article published by the Associated Press. It says the government announced raising concerns about a possible escalation of violence. The 2015 peace deal with the Tuareg rebel organizations is ending, quote, with immediate effect, end quote, because the rebels have failed to comply with its terms and because of, quote, acts of hostility, unquote, by Algeria, uh, which has been the main mediator in the peace efforts, government spokesperson Colonel Abdullahi Maiga 
said on state television uh, just this last past Thursday night. Representatives of the rebel group did not immediately comment, but Algeria's Minister of Foreign Affairs said in a statement that, quote, it deeply regrets, unquote, Mali's decision to end the agreement and denied working against it. And uh, finally, United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken, uh, just this last past Tuesday, pitched the United States as a better security partner for Africa in place of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, which he accused of exploiting coup-hit and conflict-hit nations in the continent Sahel region. Blinken, who is visiting Nigeria as part of an Africa tour to strengthen bilateral relations, said the U.S. will continue to support Nigeria and other regional partners in their efforts to help stabilize the Sahel, the vast region south of the Sahara Desert that Islamic extremist groups have turned into a global terror hotspot as it struggles uh, with a recent spat of coups. Quote, we hope it can make a difference in restoring the constitutional order and restoring a critical partner in trying to find security in the region, unquote. Blinken told reporters in the Nigerian capital of uh, Abuja, speaking in particular about Niger, neighboring Niger, where a coup or a revolutionary movement uh, came to power, as many have surmised, uh, according to them, has threatened years of support by Western and European nations. Until Niger's elected uh, President Mohamed Bazoum was deposed uh, by his elite soldiers in July, the country had played a critical role in U.S. counterterrorism activities in the Sahel and was seen as one of the last democratic nations in the, in the region to partner with to counter jihadi violence linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group. Now, this is the imperialist line uh, in regard to their ongoing military presence uh, in the Sahel region, uh, which is under uh, attack uh, from France uh, as well as uh, the presence of the United States. But as Niger faced sanctions from neighbors, the West and Europe, uh, its new uh, governments severed military ties with European nations and turned to the Russian Federation for Security Partnership, neighboring Burkina Faso and Mali, which have also had two uh, seizures of power by military forces uh, since 2020, have also taken similar steps. Wagner, which is active in parts of Africa, including uh, the West African state of Mali, was also one of the first sources of help that Niger's military leaders reached out to for support after the seizure of power by the CNSP. With that, uh, we want to conclude our segment, uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, 
January 28, uh, 2024. Go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. From the Pointer Sisters uh, from their 1980 release, uh, Love Too Good to Last. You're listening to the Pan African Journal. 
special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 28th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move into a panel discussion aired uh, earlier over the South African Broadcasting Corporation on uh, the South African uh, International uh, Court of Justice lawsuit that they filed on behalf of the Palestinian people charging genocide in violation of the Genocide Convention, which uh, they got a favorable ruling uh, just this last past Friday, uh, indicating uh, that the rules uh, that uh, the charge of genocide is plausible. And uh, both parties have to return uh, to the court in The Hague, in the Netherlands, uh, within 30 days. Let's listen uh, to uh, this discussion. The ICJ judgment very much in sharp focus. It's topical starts right now. A very good evening to you, South Africa, those watching around the world. My name is Blaine Herman, and this is Ed's Topical. Our digital audience with us tonight, there they are. Good to see them. Among them, our guests. We're going to take their questions for our guests in a short while. Look, there's been mixed reactions to the ruling of the International Court of Justice. Part of the order, Israel must, in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of the Genocide Convention. What does that mean? Well, the order went on to say this in particular, right? The killing of members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about a physical destruction in whole, in whole or in part. And the last one was the imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court also called for the immediate and unconditional release of hostages. That's important. The court, however, stopped short of, of ordering an immediate halt to military operations. So, so how does that form part of the calculus? How is it weighed up in terms of what I just mentioned now, in terms of the order? Tonight, we are going to break down the court's order for you. Look at developments and, and the measures that need to be taken. What we know and why it matters. What is the legality and what is the practicality? Remember, Israel's prime minister is saying they, they will continue to do what is necessary to defend their country and defend its people. Adding that the charge genocide leveled against Israel is not only false, it's outrageous. And decent people everywhere should reject it. South Africa's president, on the other hand, Cyril Ramaphosa, calling this a victory for international law, for human rights, and above all, for justice. Which leads us to the question of the week. And we're asking you, while South Africa's president has hailed the ICJ's ruling as a victory for justice, and the Israeli prime minister labeling it as, you know, outrageous, this ruling, what's your thoughts with regards to this? Let us know at its topical SABC. Walk with me as always, let's get you some context. What about the possibility of this ruling being vetoed at the Security Council? What then? What sort of options does South Africa have if this order is challenged? We're going to 
let you know with the better minds on the program tonight. Share your thoughts as well. That is topical SABC. Perspective coming up. All right, let's get you some context. And as always, we turn to the magic wall, why, what we know and why it matters. Tonight, my guest, SABC News International Editor Sophie Mokwena, joins me now live. Sophie, good to have you on the program. Let's break it down for the viewer, tee it up in terms of our discussion tonight. So we're looking at the provisional measures on Israel. What did South Africa initially want? What did they get? Well, uh, you know that the intention was to ensure that the ceasefire because the ceasefire will assist in implementing some of the provisional requirements in terms of ensuring that you intervene to save lives, but to ensure that uh, those who are affected are able to get food, they are able to get shelter, they are able to get water in Gaza. And therefore, uh, as you pointed out, there's no word ceasefire. Mm. But South Africa is saying that by imposing these measures you yeah. will be able to implement some of these measures if there's some reprieve right. in terms of fighting and therefore the other important issue is uh, they got where the judges said right. there must be a responsibility from the Israel government mm -hmm. to prevent the genocide. Mm -hmm. As you know that this case didn't deal with Correct. whether they have committed genocide, but they intend or this will lead to genocide. Yeah. And therefore the judges, 15 of those judges said prevent the genocide. Yeah. The two didn't agree. And then you have to implement and abide by the provisions yeah. immediately right. and then you prevent and punish incitement. This emanates from statements right. made by officials from Israel government, you know, the prime minister, the ministers, the defense force. Secondly, uh, prevent the destruction of evidence. For me, this is very, very mm -hmm. important because this is the provisional process. When you go to the case, you need to present evidence as South Africa and those who are supporting you that uh, uh, because you want to argue that uh, Israel has committed genocide, therefore prevent destruction of evidence because normally when there are these kinds of cases either in the ICJ or in the ICC, there's tendency to destroy evidence so that those who are supposed to be held accountable uh, get away with murder. Right. And then humanitarian assistance, yeah. this was the main issue yeah. from the United Nations and the Secretary General, you know, last week, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, he was very, very strong on this, including right. the World Health Organization. Because that's where the argument comes from South Africa, is specifically about the ceasefire. Because if you don't have a ceasefire or a halt in hostilities, uh, how do you get humanitarian aid in there? That's a big question. And then within a one month, Israel needs to submit a, a report. A report. This is part of accountability. We told you to do this. 
how far are you? Wow. And I think Israel uh, will argue that already when they were presenting their case, they pointed out to steps that they've taken in terms of ensuring that civilians are not caught in a crossfire, right. but the numbers are uh, different. Right. They also presented uh, information in relation to denial of uh, bombardment of hospitals and facilities, and they also right. said that they've agreed to humanitarian uh, aid going to Gaza, but even today, mm. when you look at what's happening on social media, there are Israelis who are blocking a entrance to Gaza mm. on one of the, uh, the, 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 the borders, and therefore it, it doesn't speak to what they said right. during the hearing. So you would notice, as you mentioned, Sophie, the top number here is the judges that voted for and you notice that there was one judge in particular that consistently voted against uh, these provisional measures. And that was the judge from Uganda. Uganda issuing a statement clarifying their position, saying that the judge from Uganda, nationality from Uganda, is independent. That's her opinion. And you would expect that of a judge, correct? You wouldn't necessarily expect a judge to adopt the position of a country. But why was it so important for the, the country to issue that clarification? Well, when I spoke to Dr. Navi Pillay, yeah. who is familiar with these processes, as you know that she is leading a commission, the UN commission that is investigating settlements uh, in, in, in Palestine, and uh, whether uh, legally uh, or is it illegal. Mm. She told me that when she looked at the panel, these are eminent men and women who can be independent in their application right. of law and looking at the case of Myanmar. But the backlash, the backlash mm. since Friday and Saturday, Uganda felt that they should clarify and make a distinction or show the world that what she is doing mm. is independent and what their positions are in relation to the Palestinian question is different and that is why they did evoke uh, in terms of how they have voted mm -hmm. in the uh, in the uh, in the vote in the general assembly they've been supporting the resolutions right. that calls for ceasefire and all of that right. so i think it had to do with this, with backlash particularly yeah. on the African continent, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because people were linking it with atrocities, that alleged atrocities in Uganda that right. perhaps Museveni told her to vote that okay. way because he's scared that at some point in time he will have to appear before mm -hmm. the ICJ. But uh, uh, the government then took a decision to clarify that matter and pointed out that look at how we have conducted right. ourselves in the Security Council. So what are we talking about in terms of the judges? There's about 15 judges. I think it's a, a nine-year term that they get. Cross-section uh, from around the world. Then you have the judges ad hoc. An example of that was Judge Mosaneke. Um, when you look at this, this unit in particular, Sophie, um, and they pass judgments, what does that tell us in terms of the direction it's going? Well, they've been consistent. Oh. They have been consistent and they do listen. The fact that they allowed this case or this uh, provisional measures to be imposed on Israel. Remember, Israel had argued that they don't have uh, the right to listen or to this 
request by yes. South Africa. But they took an independent uh, position to say, when we look at the matter at hand and when we look at what the convention is saying on genocide yes. and our own uh, guidelines that guides us as a world court, the organ of the United mm -hmm. Nations, this matter must be heard. And these are state parties right. and they are signatories to the Genocide Convention. Yes. And therefore, for now, one can say uh, they will exercise their independent mm -hmm. uh, judgments when the real case is heard. Right. But secondly, one thing that I noted, even the judge of the former Supreme Court judge of Israel, mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. are other issues where he did agree with other uh, judges. And therefore, right. you yeah. can see even there that he was uh, exercising his uh, independent uh, uh, thinking in terms of uh, what needs to be done on prevention yeah. and punishment of those who are inciting genocide. And he agrees. Yeah. And then prevent the destruction of evidence. Yeah. He agrees that when the case uh, is had, you can bring that evidence, right. so we'll work through the evidence. But secondly, what made people to attack the judge from Uganda, it's because she's a human rights mm, mm. Uh, legal person. Right. And therefore people thought that for human rights, you can see that yeah. the human rights of the Palestinians are violated. Right. So it's very important and something that you touched on uh, with regards to the bigger case. This, these are provisional measures ordered. Uh, the bigger case with regards to genocide and where that becomes important, the important word there is intent. That will take a long time, correct? That will take a long time because you have to present evidence. Yeah. And uh, that is why the panel announced or made a ruling that don't destroy evidence right. because we still have to deal with the merits of the case in relation to making a ruling whether Israel has committed genocide but this this is the allegation from south africa and south africa is firm and south africa is saying i'm going to present evidence right we're going to flesh it out a bit more sophie is going to stay with us for our discussion as well we thank her very much indeed we also want you to have your say as well so we go to the regular word on the street feature we took to the streets of johannesburg seeking diverse insights and perspectives on this topic and this is what you had to say I think the judgment is indeed a step towards the resolution of the question of Israel and Palestine. Um, it's an important step because it has ordered Israel to stop the atrocities, to stop the attacks, to stop the injustice that is committing against the people of Palestine. What was very positive about the decision is that they insisted that the hostages be released so we can look forward to that hopefully uh, well uh, you know it's a question of maybe the, the pot calling the kettle black I don't think the case should have been brought before the International Court in the first place uh, I think South Africa has got potential but they need to deal with their own problems on the African continent first the ceasefire would have been the first that we were, or they were, supposed to do. <laughs> but now, looking at the way it is, even the ISJ themselves, they are being told what to do. 
they are doing as the main players are telling them what to do. And yeah, that's a picture that we are getting. I think I'm very happy with the, the results. I think it's a, it's a first step towards uh, towards looking into more closely what uh, what Israel will be doing in the in the next few months. Uh, yes, and I think I was expecting a ceasefire, but uh, but look, it's already it's a good it's a good step towards the right direction. I would say. In terms of the verdict, um, I think we would have hoped for more out of it. But I, from from where we were, I think before the case went to the ICJ, I think it is a step in the right direction. Yeah. I think it's a really good reflection on how international justice is working that they ruled in favor. Um, the evidence was very strong and it does make you hopeful. All right, we really appreciate your thoughts on this matter. We've got so much to discuss. We're going to take a quick break. Our panel discussion after this. Welcome back. You're watching It's Topical, important discussion. We're breaking down the ICJ ruling, issuing provisional measures. The order was handed down this week. Lots of reaction with regards to it. But what does it mean in terms of the legality? What does it mean in terms of the practicality? To help me, uh, Sophie McQuena is still with us, SABC News International Editor. We also have Professor Tuli Madonsela from the Center of Social Justice at Stellenbosch University, as well as uh, Natasha Hausdorff. Uh, she's a barrister and a legal director of UK Lawyers for Israel's uh, Charitable Trust. Uh, good to have you on the program. We also have our digital audience as well. We're going to get their take in a short while. Professor, maybe to you first, uh, regarding what came out of this judgment. ICJ stopping short of calling for a ceasefire, uh, but ordering that Israel must adhere to these provisional measures. Um, but in order to do that, in terms of maybe the humanitarian issue, how do we get aid into Gaza, do you think that that means a cessation of hostilities, a halting of, of hostilities in Gaza? Absolutely. Greetings to you and to fellow panelists and viewers. My reading of the judgment is exactly what you just said, that South Africa got everything it asked for, but in different wording from the the ICJ. Maybe the only thing South Africa did not get was the requirement that an investigation team be allowed to start doing work in Gaza. But in so far as desisting from doing all of the things that constitute genocide in terms of Articles 2, 3, Etc. South Africa got mm. a that um, the actions that Israel has been taking up until now can plausibly be regarded as genocide, and therefore you can't read the remedial action in a manner that is divorced from the findings, mm. because the remedial action says stop doing certain things start doing certain things. And obviously it means then Israel is no longer allowed to carpet, to carpet bomb people in Gaza, is no longer allowed to blockade medical supplies, food, water, etc. Israel is no longer allowed right. to keep displacing people. 
And if anything that is violating given less than 10 is now in violation. All right. Professor, I think we just have a bit of a technical issue with your line. We'll try to fix that up. But maybe let me go to Barrister Hausdorf. Is that your understanding, Barrister? Because I'm just reading the first part of this order, saying that Israel must, in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of the Genocide Convention. And this includes, and I'll just read two, killing members of the group and causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of that group. How do they even start to adhere to this order without a ceasefire? Well, good evening. It's very good to be with you. And it's very important, especially in light of the extraordinary analysis we just heard, to correct the record on so much of the reporting uh, of this order and clarify uh, that in this regard, the court has simply ordered Israel comply with the Genocide Convention, which Israel has been crystal clear uh, that it has always been in compliance with. There is nothing new here, and there are no substantive orders other uh, than uh, the requiring of a report uh, from uh, the State of Israel uh, as to how it is complying with the Genocide Convention. Um, the court has not made any findings. That's critical to be clear on. Uh, and it has not directed Israel to alter its conduct in any way. The court is not in a position to assess the manner in which Israel is conducting uh, the war against Hamas. And these provisional measures were considered by the Ugandan judge, Sebutinde, uh, to be entirely um, uh, irrelevant, uh, not advancing the legal position uh, at all. The word that she used, in fact, was redundant, simply because they restate the requirements of the Genocide Convention itself. I'll agree with my fellow panelists on one count. South Africa has succeeded here, but only in succeeding to use the court as a political tool to advance an agenda of lawfare. And unfortunately, international law generally, the International Court of Justice specifically, uh, and the rights of the Palestinians in particular uh, are all going to suffer as a result of the discrediting of the International Court of Justice and the abuse of international law to pursue an agenda right. against Israel. Because if any of uh, the, the South Africans watching this, or indeed those around the world, actually care about the ordinary Palestinians in Gaza, they will be doing their utmost to ensure that the abuse that they are suffering by Hamas is put to an end. And unfortunately, what we have seen play out in the international discourse around this decision and clearly it's been celebrated by Hamas, South Africa is doing the bidding of a terrorist organization in this regard, that is not serving the interests of ordinary Palestinians. South Africa has come out and said that they condemned the attack by Hamas on October 7th. They put that on record. But Sophie, let me bring you in with regards to, so what, what changes then? If, if Israel's prime minister says they will do whatever it takes to defend their, their country, and I guess they have a right to defend their country, then you have, on the other hand, these orders, the provisional orders. Um, how does that fit part of the calculus of any change that is going to be seen on the ground? Well, clearly there is change, a slight change. As I pointed out when we were looking at uh, those provisional orders or uh, implementation thereof, Israel, when it was presenting its case at the ICJ, it did point out to scaling down. 
it did point out to issues that they are doing on the ground. And many people have then said that they were anticipating that the ruling will be in this form where they will be required mm -hmm. to take responsibility in ensuring that uh, there is no genocide, uh, preserving of information, reporting back to the court in terms of what they are doing. Now, mm -hmm. yes, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, let's listen properly to what he said. He, 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 he changed the tone. He started by saying we respect international law and we respect this court mm. because it was established after the Jews went through terrible time and they are the signatories, the first signatories, South Africa a signatory too. Right. Therefore you can't establish an institution and turn around and reject everything. Yes, you have a right to criticize, disagree or agree with an institution for better outcomes. Mm. And then, so he went further to say, however, we will continue to defend uh, the citizens of right. Israel and our country. No one who's got a sound mind will deprive any country from protecting its territory and its citizens. Correct. But as you do that, how do you ensure that you don't commit mm -hmm. either crimes against humanity or you don't commit a genocide. So you right. have to strike a balance. And when you listen to that clip on Friday after the judgment, you can hear that, yes, they still feel that they are right and they have to ensure that they bring back those hostages. Yes. But they do take into cognizance that uh, this is an important institution, an organ of the United Nations. Right. And also they are signatories to the, uh, to the ICJ. And therefore, I think... Dr. Navi Pillay summed it well when she said that uh, if Israel doesn't comply with what the ICJ said, yes. it will be up to member states of the UN and the Security Council to ensure that uh, Israel does comply. Because these right. are provisional measures. Nobody has said they've committed genocide. The matter must be heard later. I want to touch uh, on the consequences of not abiding because this is a binding uh, judgment. Uh, Professor Madonsela, before we move on to that, I, I just want to talk about the issue of the hostages. Um, and as you know, the, the court ordered the immediate release of the hostages. Do you think South Africa can play a bigger role in trying to get those hostages home? Firstly, the court did not order the release of the hostages. It, it was not within its remit to do so. The court called for the release of the hostages. Correct. And, um, and of course, that's a humanitarian appeal because um, it is one of the issues that are at the heart of this measure. I would like to respectfully disagree with the barrister from the UK. I don't know if UK law is different from the law of the world and the law in South Africa, but my understanding of the law is these were preliminary proceedings, and there were findings on the preliminary issues. And not the preliminary issues, the first finding was there is jurisdiction to entertain these matters, that there is a dispute, and that thirdly, the acts that South Africa complains of as genocidal acts can be plausibly regarded as genocidal acts. 
That is a finding, and it is a preliminary finding. It's not a finding on the merits. It doesn't say uh, Israel is committing genocide, but it says that prima facie it is in lay people's language. On the face of it, Israel is committing genocide, or Israel is probably committing genocide. That's just a simple interpretation of that judgment. Of course, that was then the basis of the remedies. And if you separate the remedies from the finding, mm-hmm. then you are lost. Barrister, how do you, how do you weigh that up in terms of uh, the prima facie uh, findings, obviously the merits will need to be assessed in terms of intent, but how does that weigh up uh, what Professor Madonsela has said? Well, I think it assists in particular to look at the dissenting opinion uh, and how this calls out uh, the break that we have seen uh, by the International Court of Justice from uh, previous um, case law uh, and how the concept of plausibility is being stretched in this regard. Paragraph 54 of the court's order makes it crystal clear that the court has only addressed plausibility of whether the rights claimed by South Africa fall under the convention, but it has not assessed the plausibility of whether there has been any breach of convention rights. Uh, And by all accounts, if we look at the figures, uh, even those that were quoted by the court, uh, which have to be uh, assessed as coming from uh, a Hamas-controlled health ministry and therefore can on no account be taken at face value. But even on that basis, uh, if any assessment of the actual claims of breach of the convention uh, were to have been conducted by the court, we would have seen some analysis um, of the fact that uh, Israel appears to be uh, being able to target Hamas and spare civilians in an unparalleled fashion, certainly uh, unparalleled in the history of urban armed conflict. Uh, But we didn't see that because the court was clear that it was only assessing whether the claims brought by South Africa were in fact within the realms of the Genocide Convention. I appreciate that might sound like a technical distinction to your audience, but it is critical, especially where it seems that over the last couple of days, this order has been so badly misrepresented, even by lawyers who are uh, acclaimed experts in their field. Uh, And it's, it's troubling because it means that Hamas uh, and other supporters of Hamas have been celebrating uh, what, in fact, uh, was a bit of a non-entity. Um, the conclusions reached by the court were, in that respect, tautologous. Let's get our digital audience um, on board and, and, and get their take with regards to how they see this. Uh, Jody, let's talk to you. Um, you know, having, having seen or heard the analysis since the ruling was handed down, do you expect any fundamental change on the ground? Ah, good evening and thank you. Um, This is a devastating blow to Israel's international standing. It is a moral victory, right? Genocide is the crime of all crimes. And at this point, the accusation is not meritless. I would start with that. Let me talk about the perhaps the secondary consequences. I think destigmatizing the word genocide was incredibly important. It is now legitimate to actually use that term to describe Israel's apartheid and all of the effects, right? The genocide has been ongoing. It predates the 7th of October, 2023. This has been a sustained campaign over many, many years. We are just witnessing the final phase, which is the... Um, extermination phase. So it's really important that 
the word genocide is mm. now embedded in the public consciousness, right? People understand what it is, they understand the faces, and in that way, it can support movements like BDS. So that would be an unintended consequence, but a really positive one, um, where people are able to actually exercise um, some sort of, uh, they don't feel as impotent, they are able to contribute. So I think there are many positive right. effects as it relates to the ruling beyond just what we are discussing this evening. So let me just start off by mentioning right. that I think that's very positive. Jody, thank you very much indeed. Let's hear from Ariel. Good evening and thank you for having me and hi to all the listeners. I just wanted to make a note on the ruling because prior to handing down the provisional measures and notably the lack of a ceasefire uh, mentioned explicitly, the court listed multiple acts of destruction. It highlighted the devastation that was present in Gaza. And despite this, despite the enormous amount of damage that had been caused and the disregard of all the evidence provided by the Israelis, the court still didn't call for a ceasefire. And I think what this shows us in between the lines, or at least that the court tacitly accepted the fact that there was some form of just conflict being waged by the Israelis. And the Israelis made it very clear that they were targeting Hamas and that it was a reaction to the October 7th attacks where Hamas broke a ceasefire that had previously been brokered. And the Israelis went in with the mandate of eliminating a terrorist organization in the name of self-defense. Throughout this entire conflict, in one of the most complicated and densely populated areas on the planet, it still managed mm. to wage a war in which the world has witnessed an incredible level, and Ms. Hausdorff mentioned this, of regard for civilian life and attempting to prevent unnecessary civilian casualties as all life lost is tragic. Right. So the court looked at all this evidence. The court saw this, mentioned it prior to giving its provisional measures, and then still did not give a ceasefire. And I right. think as South Africans requested an urgent in, uh, immediate cessation to their hostilities, I think it is a massive blow to the South African, to the African uh, application. Ariel, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Jeremiah, I see your hand and Mark as well. We'll come back to you in a short while. Uh, Professor Marginsella, I just want to bring you in with regards to your take of why the court didn't explicitly call for a ceasefire. Thank you. Firstly, the court was very technical and very elaborate on its reasoning. And with due respect to Ariel, it never said the things that he claims the court took into consideration. It never said Israel had done its best to prevent killing civilians, mass displacing them, blockading medical aid, blockading um, food, water, etc. In fact, it said the opposite. My own reading of why it may not have ordered a ceasefire is simply a legal technicality. Mm. It's not the same here as having the Ukraine war, where you have Ukraine and Russia being sovereign countries with armies, etc., and being signatories of the convention. So if the court had ordered a ceasefire in those words, any continued attack, even directly on Hamas, would have been regard regarded as a violation of the Convention. Right. But so far, the court, the court noted in broad daylight that Israel has been 
killing civilians. It's a right there in the judgment. There's no way in this code where it says, in this judgment, where it says Israel has been trying to avoid killing civilians. In fact, if you look at the way Israel is watching this war, is that it's killing as many civilians as it can find with the hope that at least maybe 0.1% of them mm. might be cast. But the court That's of an Israel, allegation. But can we please respect each other? Go ahead, uh, uh, Professor Madunsel. I'll get your, your take, Barrister, uh, in a short while. Just uh, okay. if you can conclude your thoughts, uh, Professor. Well, the last thing is the court also read painstakingly the genocidal or the probably genocidal statements made by Israeli leaders. And, of course, if we're looking at the order that talks about stopping people who are committing or causing genocide and not being complicit in genocide, it would include stopping those statements that are inciting people to commit genocide. Uh, Barrister Hausdorff? Well, the court didn't consider uh, intent at all. I've already explained the uh, remit of their considerations, but the nature of the allegations that we've heard now from a number of members of, uh, of, of your panel um, underscore what it is that South Africa was seeking to achieve. Uh, a rewriting of uh, the current events uh, and the promotion of these blood libels of Israel uh, committing genocide or targeting civilians. It's important to make a distinction between the general allegations of breaches of international law, unfounded as they are, that we have just heard, and the specific allegation of genocide, which is grotesque, especially the day after International Holocaust uh, Memorial Day that was marked uh, by right-thinking individuals uh, all around the world yesterday. South Africa is seeking to shoehorn this case into uh, genocide specifically is because of the technicality, because it seeks to use the hook of the Genocide Convention, which Israel is a party to. Uh, and you mentioned earlier Netanyahu's comments about Israel, of course, abiding by international law. Those are not new. Israel has always been clear about it prizing above all its international law obligations. That is why it is going uh, even beyond what international humanitarian law requires with respect to its conduct of the armed conflict in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, but Netanyahu was clear in this respect that Israel has consistently been complying with its international law obligations and that the Jews in Israel have a unique understanding of what genocide is. Let us not forget that this term was coined by Raphael Lemkin, also a Jew, in the aftermath of the Holocaust to be able to provide a terminology for the targeting of Jews because they are Jews. And so it is particularly malicious grotesque and morally repugnant that South Africa would seek to utilize this particular term against Israel, albeit that I say it does it for technical reasons and not because there is any foundational basis to the gross uh, misrepresentation that has been put before the court. But this important uh, issue that I, I have to call out, this idea that Israel is targeting civilians, is nothing to do with the concept of genocide. It is part of the mud that the South African legal team sought to throw, along with these absurd allegations of apartheid, which I would consider to be an insult to all South Africans that suffered under real apartheid in South Africa. When you talk about the mud being thrown, how do you then explain to the public about the 
thousands of people that have been killed. I think it's, it's over 25,000 people that have been killed in Gaza. Uh, innocent people, according to the United Nations. Um, I'm sorry. According to the United Nations, uh, that, that is not the case, because these figures are coming from the Hamas-controlled ministry. I would begin by asking a series of questions, which I would encourage your audience uh, to pose likewise with respect to that figure. Uh, firstly, where has it come from, Hamas? an internationally prescribed terrorist organization that cannot be trusted, and those figures are unable to be independently verified. That is question number one. Question number two, how did these individuals die? Because we have reports confirmed also by the United States uh, that has endorsed them as Hamas targeting individual civilians, shooting them, bombing them. We also know that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad rockets fired out of the Gaza Strip, aiming towards Israeli civilians, frequently fall short in the Gaza Strip, killing Palestinian civilians. Mm. So question number two is how many of those numbers have been killed uh, by Hamas and other Palestinian terrorist groups? And question number three is Go to your, your, your assumption of innocence here, because the IDF has been clear. It knows that it has over 9,000 terrorists. If that is the case, uh, then those are certainly not being reflected in the numbers of the masses because they make no decisions terrorists and civilians. Israel, in upholding the laws of armed conflict, distinguishes between civilian and combatant objectives. And that is why, the court, the order uh, that we saw, right. uh, when reference is made to homes, schools, hospitals, mosques uh, being destroyed, the absence of context which tells us right. that Hamas routinely, as a matter of course, uses civilian and protected infrastructure as part of its terror uh, network. That needs to be called out. And the fact that the court didn't even feel able to reference that in the context of making these provisional me measures is a shameful day for the International Court of Justice and does not vote for right. international order. Let me bring in Sophie. Uh, with regard to the numbers that you're hearing uh, from the United Nations, etc., from our president who addressed the nation, uh, South Africa's president who addressed the nation, um, how off the mark uh, are we? Well, if Israel is denying the numbers, well, it's fine, but allow investigation or independent investigators so that the whole world can have a better sense of what transpired. Allow independent investigators so that these numbers can be verified. And I think that speaks to the judgment where it says don't destroy evidence. Right so that you are able at the end of the day also to verify whether these numbers that are being bended around are correct. Even the UN has issued uh, numbers in terms of the healthcare workers who have died. The organizations representing media have issued numbers yeah. in terms of journalists who have died. So the best way to deal with this disagreement in terms of numbers, yeah. you have to verify Data and therefore allow independent investigators to do just that, and it can be UN right. investigators. And as you know, there's a, a night vigil held in honor of the journalists that have been killed in various parts of the country uh, tonight as we speak. I just want to talk about the way forward before I go back to my guests. Um, the ICJ ruling, what's the chances of it being vetoed at the Security Council? There is a possibility. The United States of America has already responded to the judgment and therefore 
I can see U.S. making an about 10. U.S. is supporting Israel. And it's understandable. Remember the military capability of uh, Israel also. Uh, United States of America has to take responsibility. If finally, uh, when you look at the case uh, and the merits, somebody has to account. And therefore, I think America is preempting processes. And I think it may not agree with the interpretation yes. of the judgment. We're going to see the same issue playing itself in the Security Council. Mm. As you can see now, that uh, even legal minds, uh, people are interpreting this uh, judgment right. in terms of uh, how they see it. So if legal minds are doing this, what about politicians? Because Security Council is right. nothing but politics. So I expect tomorrow yeah. when Algeria is requesting this matter to be uh, discussed, Definitely, we may see uh, the same situation. Right. And, and then yeah. what, what's the option for South Africa if it is indeed a veto? They have the option of the United Nations General Assembly, It right? will go to the General right. Assembly. The voting there, uh, it will depend how voting will transpire. Right. Again, not much, but it will send a signal that somebody is losing a high moral ground. Either South Africa's argument or uh, what America and the rest will be saying, depending on the numbers in right. terms of the vote. And, 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 and finally, don't forget this matter, it's not only before the ICJ, it right. is also before the International Criminal Court. Right, and the International Criminal Court is where the individuals uh, can be held accountable. Let's go to Jeremiah, then Mark, then Daniel in that order. Jeremiah, to you first. Good evening to everyone. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I would like to start with uh, this one of the South Africa is, is achieved its objective, basically on the submission of these 84 pages of uh, uh, their their case. Because reason being, uh, it's been criticized. Whether we say that Israel and USA, where they say that it's meritless, it's baseless. But when the judge, the judge order and measures, it can show you that when they, the judge, they say that the case of South Africa of genocide is possible, where you can see the all measures, they, they can't happen without a ceasefire. I think these uh, judges, they use other ways, but not using the ceasefire, because there's no way it can happen without ceasefire. And the number two, I would like to check on the uh, comment of Israel based on this issue where they say that the court is biased is look on on other on one side not other side basically we know that hamas is not a is not a state and hamas is it can abide by by uh, icd right. which is a international court of law so and another thing that i will i will, I will just uh, will highlight there is the alliance or the support of the Israel, basically U.S., U.S.A. and other uh, West country. Automatically, they will vote this one of uh, it, 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 uh, cancel U.N. cancel. Right. So, according to my view, according to my view, Israel it will not it will it will not stop what they are doing. If we check the numbers, the numbers they are told death is crazy each and every day. They show that they will not uh, they will right. not abide by uh, international law. Jeremiah, thank you thank very you. much indeed. Um, yeah, the, look, the numbers that I quoted earlier on was from President Silva Maposa's speech where he said, according to the United Nations, more than 25,000 people have been killed during Israel's war with Hamas. Among the dead are relief workers, UN staff, journalists, and more than 16,000 uh, of the dead are women and children. So that was pulled from that speech. Uh, let me hear from Mark and then Daniel. Mark? 
So notably, there is some data missing from your bar chart there where you have 15 to 2. The number of judges that voted in favor of stopping Israel from conducting its just war against Hamas was zero. So zero to 17. All the judges implicitly agree that Israel has a right to defend itself. All the measures do is explain um, how Israel must prosecute its war, which is to abide by the convention. Now, Professor Mononcella seems to want something more, to say, well, these measures necessarily must include a ceasefire. Well, they don't, because um, what you must have when you're doing the killing um, for it to be um, a breach of the convention is genocidal intent. And that is something to be determined at a later stage. It is a tragic thing that in every single war, civilians will die. Uh, that is tragic. And that is, in this particular war, at the hands of Hamas. Hamas engaged in one of the worst attacks on Jews since the Holocaust, deliberately with genocidal intent, uh, killed men, women, and children, um, engaged in a rape spree and um, burned children alive. Um, now, what Israel has done is to deliberately target Hamas, um, to warn civilians, to ensure that there are humanitarian corridors, provided a large amount of evidence to show that it is trying to preserve civilian life. And one way of thinking about this is to compare this conflict to other conflicts. So we know, for example, that the ratio um, of civilian to militant deaths in this particular um, um, military endeavor is two to one. But if we compare that to the international standard, which is nine to one, so in other words, for every militant killed, nine civilians are killed. And if we look at, for example, the war in Yugoslavia, um, where NATO was trying to stop a genocide, you had four civilians killed for every Serbian militant. So there is a good evidence to think that um, Israel is not trying to kill civilians. Um, if you also compare the same number of days um, in Rwanda, there in a period of 100 days, one million people were killed with machetes. Now, Israel is as an enormously powerful army, uh, it could kill every single person in Gaza, but it has not. It has deliberately decided to take a view to eradicate Hamas and preserve civilian life. Oh. So it's libelous right. um, to claim otherwise. Furthermore, what Jody says is this idea that it's a wonderful thing that we've denuded the term genocide. That's an incredibly dangerous thing. This is the worst of all possible crimes. And so it is important that we respect its ordinary meaning. Once you start to change what genocide means, well, then we've sucked from the room the importance of what the term really means, and that undermines genuine genocide. Right. It gives genocide ears a license to say, well, if that counts to genocide, well, very well, dangerous. Right, Mark, thank you very much indeed. Let me hear from Daniel, and then I'm going to get final thoughts from Professor Modoncella as well as uh, Barrister Hustle. Daniel? Daniel? Thank you. I think your viewers and listeners have been treated to a very commendable display of Israeli talking points which have been given tremendous airtime uh, tonight. Unfortunately, those talking points bear no resemblance whatsoever to the realities of what is going on. Every regime will have the people who are willing and happy to shill for it. That was true of the apartheid regime in South Africa, of course. There are four crucial spins that have been put forward here which need to be debunked. The first is that the ruling on the provisional measures at the International Court of Justice was somehow a result for Israel. The International Court of Justice, 15 to 2 in virtually every case, 16 to 1, even the Israeli judge voting with the majority on a couple of the measures, has said, number one, that Israel's attempt to say that there was no dispute, wrong. Number two, that it's not justiciable in the court, wrong. Number three, that there's no plausible concern on genocide here. Wrong. So Israel now stands in front of that court accused 
of genocide and that will carry forward. So if that's what an Israeli success looks like, I'd be fascinated to know what failure looks like. Number two, you've been told that this war has been conducted trying to protect civilians. Let's remind ourselves, Save the Children has said that three times as many children, Palestinian children, have been killed in Gaza by this supposed attempt to protect civilians as are killed across the world in every conflict in any typical year for the last several years. Israel has devastated the civilian landscape. Four out of five people suffering from severe hunger in the world today are in Gaza because of what Israel has done. Number three, this attempt to suggest that it is somehow anti-Semitic or libelous to take Israel to the International Court of Justice does such an injustice to the Jews around the world who believe that never again is for anyone. And there were brave courageous Jewish people who stood against apartheid then, and it's important for your viewers to know that there are Jewish people who stand against apartheid today. And finally, the suggestion that this is a failure for South Africa. The world is looking at South Africa and seeing a state, and it shouldn't matter what your political affiliations are in South Africa. This is a state that has stood up for justice and is tremendously commendable in having done so. Thank you very much indeed. Natasha, Hausdorf and uh, Professor Chilimodonsela, I've got literally a minute left, so I'm going to give you 30 seconds each. Uh, First, Barrister, to you. Well, unfortunately, the propagation of these utter falsehoods, in particular from those on the ground that are under the control of Hamas, uh, have led many, otherwise I'm sure, uh, right-thinking people who care about civilian casualties uh, astray in this regard. Then the fact that uh, UN bodies are being quoted uh, here on this panel, but also by the court, is extremely concerning in the context of just now, UNRWA being uh, uh, under Philippe Lazzarini, who was quoted by the court, of course, um, UNRWA has had its funding uh, suspended by a number of states on the basis uh, that its uh, staff have been complicit in the massacre, the real genocide uh, that occurred on the 7th of October. In that context, to hear Hamas propaganda repeated as we have just now, uh, and also by the International Court of Justice, is not a victory for anyone. It is not a victory for the South Africans, uh, who should rightly expect their government to be attending to the dire situation at home, rather than playing politics on behalf of a terrorist organization. It is not a victory for the Israelis, clearly, uh, who are having to deal with these increasing blood libels being propagated. It is certainly not a victory for the Palestinians in Gaza, who are continuing to be oppressed, butchered, slaughtered by the Hamas that control them. I'm really being pushed uh, by my producers, but I thank you very much indeed. Professor, uh, last word to you. The judgment is a victory not just for South Africa, for Palestinians, for Israelis, and for all human beings who love peace, who believe in shared humanity, and who respect international law. One of the observations by the ICJ was that Israel has for many years been ignoring resolutions of the United Nations. It was a good thing that finally there is accountability. And it's not true that there was no provisional findings. There were provisional findings as a basis for providing the remedial um, the provisional um, 
directives right. that the court provided. And for me, it's sad, really, that politics are being used to interpret a judgment. Right. My request to anybody who's listening to this is please read the judgment. It's very simple. South Africa won on every allegation it made. When it came to the remedial action, right. it, the court could not order... Um, it, it, the court could not order ceasefire because Hamas is not a country or a government within a country. And lastly, stop using the idea that just because genocide was coined when Jews were victims of the Holocaust, together with six million other non-Jews, uh-huh. Jews are capable of committing genocide. Instead, it's been proven that people who have been the subject of cruelty are more likely to be cruel. Professor, thank you you so much uh, to all my guests. It pains me to wrap up this discussion, but uh, we've run out of time. So thank you so much. Look, we will continue this discussion, no doubt, as all these developments unfold. But thank you very much indeed for your time. Sophie, as always, I will tell you, go and have a rest. But I know it's not in your DNA to have a rest, but we thank you for your hard work that you've put in over the past couple of months. All right, before we go, here's my take. Look, the situation in the Middle East is, is complex and polarizing. And if you are viewing the situation from afar, there are a couple of questions that you can ask yourself to get a, get a bit of a check on your viewpoint. Are you looking at the situation through the lens of what you want it to be, or are you being objective? Over the past couple of months, you've heard the different stories. The October 7th attack resulting in the deaths of many Israelis and the taking of hostages. And the subsequent response from Israel resulting in the loss of thousands of Palestinians. I'm not trying to equate. That's not the intention. The intention is to get to this point. There is a nucleus of fact here that is familiar. Pain. Suffering. There needs to come, you know, we need to come to a time when the focus shifts to healing and reconciliation. Lasting peace. How crucial will the recent ICJ order be in getting to that end goal? We shall see. And as you know, those are the three of the most loaded words in geopolitics. And that's my take. If you miss anything, be sure to catch this program on YouTube. It's topical. Uh, Sports Live up next. If you're watching a repeat of this program, then as always, the news continues. Until next week, my brothers and sisters. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome back. That was a panel discussion and a debate on the meaning of the International Court of Justice, the United Nations High Court ruling uh, handed down just this last past Friday in the Netherlands. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, January 28th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
conflict. 
It will be, of course, be a concern. But as you say, it is coming at a time when we've seen the U.S. carrying out or being part of uh, operations against Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Houthis have been linked to Iran. And, of course, uh, Hamas, the armed group in Gaza, has also been linked to Iran as well. And the U.S. is supporting Israel in its war on Gaza. Uh, look, there's a pattern to these things, and we've seen it before in the past. It is, of course, a concern that this has happened. Uh, clearly, uh, the White House will come under pressure to do something about this, to respond in some sort of way. But they don't want to see this becoming a much wider war. So the chances of this escalating would, would be slim. I think every analyst would give you that idea. But when Joe Biden says we will respond in a time and a manner of our choosing, it's clear that there will be some sort of operation. And certainly what we've seen over the last three months is that when there has been rocket and drone attacks, and it was a drone attack which killed these three servicemen. We have seen responses normally within hours, certainly within 24. It very rarely goes to 48 or 72. So there will be a response from the United States. And perhaps there is a hope that with this response, that will keep a lid on this because no one wants to see this escalate into the Middle East, not least the Biden White House. No one wants that, particularly in an election year. We're talking about Joe Biden being on the campaign trail just in the last few hours. And so there will be that sort of response from the Americans, that there will be something almost, for want of a better word, a revenge attack. And then they are hoping that that will perhaps draw a line under this incident, although it is clear that with what we've seen with the pattern of rocket and drone attacks, this could well continue as long as the United States is thought to be given its tacit support to Israel and what it's doing in the war in Gaza. Alan, for now, thank you very much indeed. Alan Fisher talking to us from Washington, D.C. We're going to bring in Al Jazeera's senior political analyst, Marwan Bashara. Alan was making the point there. The U.S. is going to have to be pretty careful about how it responds to this because it has to be seen to do something in proportion to what had the, the attack that has been carried out um, at the same time. It doesn't want to escalate a situation which is already very tense. Yes, and I'm not sure this is a balance that it can maintain. It's going to get more difficult. I think the whole uh, notion that America wanted not to widen the war in the Middle East that started in Gaza, I think it's going to notice uh, slowly but surely that it is widening and that America is getting stuck. And uh, whatever the mission is, it's becoming mission creep. The fact that uh, it has to attack in Iraq and in Syria, in Yemen, and it has to deploy throughout the Red Sea and the East Mediterranean, America is getting sucked in. The shortest answer is the clearest answer. It's the simplest answer. President Biden needs to end the war in Gaza. This is no time to keep speaking about Iran-backed, right? If you read the, uh, the Central Command, the CENTCOM uh, Twitter feed, right, every tweet has Iran-backed, right? Iran-backed this, Iran-backed that, Iran-backed the other thing. But as the president himself admits that while these groups might be Iran-backed, but they're not necessarily Iran-directed, that these attacks are not necessarily part of uh, a back-and-forth tit-for-tat between Iran and the United States through their proxies. That there are also groups from within, like, for example, the likes of Hezbollah, that's acting not necessarily on orders from Iran. It's acting in solidarity with the people of Palestine, for example. And you're going to see something like that 
in Syria and Iraq and in Yemen, whereby not everything is remote controlled from Tehran, that things just happen. And things might get out of hand easily, especially with those asymmetrical enemies that the United States has throughout the region. This will be, you know, quite dangerous for a president uh, who is in election year and who vowed not to get sucked into the Middle East mm -hmm. war. Mm -hmm. Because we've seen in the past when there have been attacks on, say, U.S. military bases in Iraq, there has not always been an instantaneous military response. There is, one would imagine, a period of intelligence gathering to try to establish who it was in the first place that actually fired, that made the attack, and then create some sort of, as I say, proportional or directed uh, response. But it is particularly interesting, isn't it, that Joe Biden has chosen to specify Iran within this rather than perhaps wait, and I'm not entirely sure when these attacks have happened, but rather than wait a little bit longer just to establish exactly who it was that fired the, the, the that flew the drone in. No, I think the, the boogeyman is, is necessary. You have to have an, an enemy more serious than, uh, you know, these little uh, groups in certain borders or in certain gray areas. You see, because it's a problem for the United States if its enemies are in the failed state of Yemen, the failed state of Syria, and the failed, and the failed gray zones of Iraq, right? And part of Lebanon as well, right? This is not something you can afford to fight. This is how you get in trouble. The United States, and probably a lot of viewers around the world don't remember that, but the United States had that experience 30 years ago in Somalia, when it deployed to Somalia, and it thought it understood things, and it could control. And that, probably everyone remembers it from this famous or infamous Black Hawk Down or something. But these are not manageable. You think you can manage, and you can contain, and you can find out who's behind, and who did this, and you can punish them, like the United States tried to do in Iraq by hitting al-Assad uh, after it was hit on al-Assad base. But at the end of the day, you're going to see sooner or later, that the United States is going to be forced to redeploy out of Syria, redeploy out of Iraq. And there's already negotiations about that, mm, right? Mm. And it might start to redeploy out of the Red Sea as well, because none of this, you know, has any end in sight. What exactly is the objective? Neutralizing the Middle East? If there is no attempt at silencing Tehran itself, and apparently the president, is not of the mind that he wants to have a major war with Iran. That means these things are just going to continue to happen. Today, three American soldiers are killed, 24 are injured. God knows how many of them, uh, you know, with heavy uh, uh, injuries. Mm. But this is going to continue, and it's already accumulating, and it's already expanding. Mm. Stick with us, Marlon, because I want to go to Russell Sada. He's following developments for us um, from Tehran. Uh, Russell, what are you hearing from there about what's been happening? Well, as of now, there has been no reaction from the Iranian side yet. However, um, we, we, just to give a context here, 
Iran's position regarding such attacks is, is, is quite clear. They say that these attacks are not conducted by Iran and are not planned by Iran. Iran is not involved in these attacks that are being carried out by the groups across the region. They say that they, it, Iran has allies um, across the region. However, these allies, or so-called uh, axis of the resistance, makes their decision based their, on their own assessment. So that is Iran's position here. And also it says that the U.S. is complicit in the atrocities conducted by Israel and the axis, the, the, the axis of the resistance is just reacting to Israelis, uh, Israelis' atrocities in Gaza. So this is Iran's official position as of now. So, but since the beginning of the war in Gaza, we have seen that there has been more than 100 attacks on American bases in Iraq, in Syria, and also in some other places, but in Yemen, as well, the close to Yemen as well, we have seen that Iranian allies have been involved in this. But this was the deadliest one. For the first time, we're talking about the American casualties, and America is explicitly accusing Iran of being behind this attack. So we have seen now there has been a tit-for-tat policy between Iran, the USA, and America so far. Just to give a chronology of this escalation. So um, Iran, uh, Iran, one of the top Iranian Revolutionary Guard officials, Razi Musavi, has been attacked on December 25th by Israel in Syria and has been killed. And then after that, we have seen that Iran, as a response, hit a base in Erbil, saying that it was a spy house conducted or run by the Israeli Secret Service Mossad. And then Iran has responded by missiles to some groups in the north of Syria. And then at the same day, we have seen that Iran hit another base in Pakistan. And this was kind of the reaction. However, Right after that, we have seen on January 20th, Israel has conducted another attack and killed five senior members of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, which one of them, Hujatullah Umidwar, was the head of the, uh, the, 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 the special unit of Al-Quds. He was head of the intelligence unit of Al-Quds. And now Iran was saying that it's going to respond in a time of its own choosing. So we do not know whether this attack is a retaliation or not. As of now, there is no reaction from the Iranian side. But now we know that the, 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 the things are escalating here. And any time, as, as, as there are growing concerns that the war could go beyond, beyond uh, Gaza and could turn into a regional conflict. But what is clear here, in Iran there is a growing discontent among Iranians. So Iranian political elites are feeling more and more pressure from Iranians. And Iranians are saying that their country's response to the Israeli attacks, to the American attacks, is not adequate and will not deter Americans or Israelis to attack on the Iranian allies or even inside Iran. And that's why Iranian political elites here are feeling that pressure and feeling urged to do something. As of now, that is the context, but as I said, there is not official statement yet from Tehran. Mm. Russell, I want to ask you, because we, we talk a lot about the response that is made by uh, the, the government in Tehran. We also talk about the response that's made by the Revolutionary Guard. In terms of the Iranian people themselves, is there any sort of sense that you get about how concerned they might be that this might escalate, that this might spill over from Gaza, from the West Bank, and suddenly become a, essentially a face-to-face -face conflict with Western powers? Well, here, Iranians are quite clear. They do not want original escalation. They do not want war to turn into a wider one in the region because the USA knows, the, the Iranian officials know that 
a war, direct military confrontation with Israel, means not a war only with Israel, but also with the United States of America. And that could be a deadly one for Iran. So Iran so far, that's why, has avoided of having a direct military confrontation with Israel, but rather it has been encouraging its allies or the proxies or what Iran calls the axis of the resistance to act. So Iran's response has been through its allies across the region, in Yemen by Houthis, in uh, the south of Lebanon by Hezbollah, and many of other groups in Syria and in Iraq. That is now Iran's position. However, as I said, there is a growing discontent among Iranians, so Iran's position is quite difficult. It is, on one hand, it needs to satisfy the, 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 the public pressure here, but on the other hand, it knows that a regional escalation, particularly a direct war with Israel and with the, with the United States, will have great consequences. So that's why, for now, Iranians are trying to recalibrate their actions, their reactions to this, this ongoing crisis that's going on in Gaza. And we can see that there is a clear will from Iran to see an end to the war on Gaza. Russell, thank you very much indeed. That's Russell Sadar uh, bringing us up to date from Tehran. We're going to go back to Alan Fisher in Washington, D.C. Alan, I understand you've got some more uh, background to the briefing that uh, Joe Biden has been receiving. That's right. We're being told that Lloyd Austin, who is the Defence Secretary, of course, has been ill recently, and Jake Sullivan, who's the National Security Advisor, briefed the President about what happened. Now, what is interesting is that the Jordanians are suggesting, just in the last hour or so, that the attack didn't happen on their soil. They're saying it was in the Al-Tan space, which is in the northeast corner of Syria. Uh, that, of course adds to the complication of the situation there because the United States really has no mandate to be in Syria. They moved in during the fight against ISIL. They haven't gone away. They are saying that they are there to protect the oil fields there. They are not there at the invitation of the Syrian government, a government which is recognized by a number of other governments around the world. We're also being told that 25 servicemen, all army, were injured in the attack, which also killed the three. So details will begin to become uh, more and more obvious in, in the next few hours. But certainly it would appear from what the Jordanians are saying that the United States believing that this happened on Jordanian soil is being rejected by the Jordanian government itself and saying no, this definitely happened on Syrian soil. We can go to Colin Clark. He's director of research at the Sufan Group. It's a global intelligence and security consultancy. He's joining us from Pittsburgh. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. What's your assessment of what's going on at the moment? Well, I think, you know, we, we're still waiting for, for evidence, but this is very likely an attack by Iran-backed militias uh, operating in Iraq and Syria. Uh, we know the handful of groups that are likely responsible or uh, on the short list of candidates. This is the latest in a tit-for-tat between the United States, <clears throat> excuse me, and between these Iranian-backed groups. Uh, and for any, anybody that's still doubtful, uh, this is really proof positive that we're now in uh, a regional war. There, there's no denying that U.S. troops have been killed, uh, and the United States will respond and will respond forcefully, whether that's in Iran proper or against the proxies in, in the various countries where they operate. Uh, our correspondent in Iran was making the point that Iran has invariably taken the stance that it is not in charge of these groups, or it certainly doesn't direct them. They may choose to be linked with it, but it does not direct them. Is there a risk to the U.S. if it chooses to take action inside Iran? 
there's a huge risk of escalation. But let's be clear, uh, Iran can attempt to distance itself as much as it wants, but we know that it funds, trains, and equips these groups. Uh, the IRGC Quds forces. Uh, the, the elite unit responsible for training many of these groups and increasing their skill level. So, uh, you know, Tehran can put out whatever statements it wants, um, but there will be uh, a response forthcoming. The question is, how does the United States calibrate it without escalating the conflict further? Uh, but there has to be a response at this point. U.S. blood has been shed. Uh, and I think for the Biden administration, there's going to be immense pressure to respond in a way that shows the, Un the United States isn't going to sit back and allow its troops to be attacked and killed. Yeah, it's going to be a fine line, though, isn't it? Because, again, this is the escalation of, of a war or conflict within the region is something that from the get-go the U.S. has said it absolutely does not want. It has to be, as you were saying, seem to respond to some degree. But calibrating that response is going to be very difficult, not only because of this incident, but also, of course, because of all the other smaller conflicts that the U.S. is finding itself involved in in the region. Absolutely. And look, the Biden administration is now being accused both at home and abroad of being weak, of being feckless, of not doing enough, and of not responding in force uh, against the Houthis, against uh, other groups in the region that have allowed it to escalate to this point. And so I think uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure. We're likely to see uh, action through CENTCOM or Central Command. And the question becomes, you know, what what shape does this response take? And how does the United States thread the needle uh, to show the Iranians that it's not going to sit back and allow its troops to be killed? Uh, so we're, we're really on the precipice here of some potentially dangerous escalation. Uh, we should be very clear about that. Colin Clark, it's good to get your thoughts on this, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, joining us on the line now is the former Jordanian Deputy Prime Minister, Jawad Anani. He's joining us uh, from Amman. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. Uh, there is uh, some uh, confusion, I think, about where this attack actually took place. There was a suggestion it had happened in Syria and not in Jordan. Are you able to clarify for us where your understanding of this attack is? Well, according to the reports that were issued by Western media uh, and so on, I think it is in fact in the, in, on, the, on the borders, very close border to the north, uh, western, uh, north uh, western or northeastern uh, side of Jordan and with its borders uh, uh, with Syria. And it is a very small post, so it is very close to the Syrian borders. But it is, I think, under the jurisdiction of the American troops, but still under the sovereignty of Jordan. What kind of response would uh, you expect Jordan to make, given the fact that this has happened uh, within its borders, if what you say is true? Well, I assume that Jordan would not approve this, because uh, uh, it means that uh, Jordan does not allow anybody who is on its borders and uh, within its domain to be attacked inside Jordan, this would be tantamount to a war against Jordan. It's not only against Americans in this case. So in a way, I think uh, that we would be we express our displeasure and anger at such, a, at such a, an event. Mm. Uh, there's a certain amount of speculation, as you might imagine, at this stage about where this drone originated from. Can you give us an indication of what... Uh, the situation is inside Jordan with regard to uh, armed groups that are backed by Iran, for example? Well, you know, we, right now everybody in Jordan is completely focused on what is happening in Gaza and they don't see any other 
ugly happening except that one. Yet this is because this has happened inside Jordan. There would be a kind of a question mark on everybody's mind in Jordan, an inquiry, and probably some people would really think that we told you so about about Iran and Iranian cronies, so you have to be careful. Uh, but what is worrying me a little bit is that this war, uh, this, uh, this, uh, these attacks on American troops, as your previous guest had just indicated, uh, it's becoming an election campaign issue in the United States right now. And so probably the people who could probably benefit from such an, an accident, especially that nobody actually had expected such an attack, uh, on uh, American troops in Jordan uh, to have come from people who really are interested in seeing the war expanding on to other fronts. So we have to do our own, uh, uh, our own digging and, uh, and, it's, and try to find out exactly where this fire has come from and who is the culprit behind it mm. and, and uh, call a spade a spade. Uh, so what, what is the mood amongst Jordanians at the moment with regards to the risk of a potential escalation? How concerned are people? Well, they are, you know, because uh, they don't want this war to escalate to other areas. Uh, they see that uh, only the only people who are making statements about expanding this war are the Israelis. So in a way, we don't like it. We don't like Israeli position in Gaza. And, yet it's, and we also don't like to see the world expand. I should just explain to our viewers who are looking at the map that we're showing at the moment that the uh, Mark Tower 22, which is just on the border between Jordan and Syria, is where we believe the U.S. base uh, is where this drone attack uh, has taken place. And as you can see, it's very, very close, right on the, the, the border between uh, the two countries. Um, sir, I want to ask you... Uh, in terms of the response that you would expect Jordan to have diplomatically to this, um, how concerned would Jordan be in terms of retaining U.S. troops on its soil if it were to become the case that U.S. troops were to be increasing targets? Well, I, I really don't think that, uh, you know, probably there would be some voices who would say, okay, we don't want any foreign, any foreign presence inside Jordan. But uh, these are few. Uh, most Jordanians uh, don't mind that thing, and I don't think that it. And I think this has come after a long, uh, after long uh, negotiations, and, uh, and it has been very wisely and very carefully selected so that uh, it is right on the border, as you just indicated. And so, therefore, I believe that we are more worried about the fact that the war would escalate with the presence of American troops in Jordan or without it. And that's exactly what we don't want. That mm. is the thing which is really overhanging uh, and uh, keeping most Jordanians uh, uh, apprehensive and uh, waiting. That's the former Jordanian Deputy Prime Minister Jawad Anani talking to us in Al Jazeera. So thank you very much indeed for your time. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion uh, on uh, the recent uh, report of the deaths of uh, three uh, U.S. Uh, military personnel. 
in Jordan or perhaps on the border between Jordan and Syria. And, of course, it's taking place within the context of the genocide, which is taking place in uh, the Gaza Strip, the escalation of repression uh, by uh, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, in uh, the West Bank, and also uh, attacks on uh, Hezbollah and other forces uh, throughout uh, the West Asia region from Iran, Iraq, Syria, other uh, geopolitical regions. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, the early morning hour of Monday, January 29th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding uh, comments uh, for uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal. track entitled You're the Best Thing, I'm the Best Thing You Ever Had. And uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. Uh, We've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, January 28th, and the early morning hour of uh, Monday, January 29th, uh, 2024. 
We've been broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition uh, of our program. If you'd like to have access to uh, today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of uh, Johnny Griffith and Eddie Davis. From an album entitled The Tennis Scene, this is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.